Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here again. We just pray that your special blessing be with us as we um, go through this last segment. Help us to be efficient, and Lord, I pray it'll make sense. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to remind us again that the prophetic timing, establishment, and message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church movement was and is God's answer to the movement of modern atheism. Amen. Yes? And so you're in the right place. Are you thankful for that? Yeah? And uh, so we're going to take a look now at apologetics just briefly. And a number of you were asking me yesterday, what exactly is apologetics? Does it mean we're apologizing for something? But no, as Mark explained, it literally means to defend the Bible to those who don't believe in the Bible. That's all it means. And giving a reason for your faith, using uh, reason and logic and external evidence. You know, most people who are atheists don't believe in the Bible, right? So if you say, well, the Bible says, they're like, well, I don't really care. And so there has to be... A, a certain level of reason that you use with them. Now, you have to be careful with that because you can get into the circular reasoning and you can just go around and around. But the goal is not that the reason and logic is our foundation or for what we believe, but it, it, it is, the goal is to bring them to a place where they will have at least some kind of confidence in the Word of God as credible and valid. Does that make sense? So when I was an atheist, my whole argument was the Bible can't be trusted. It's not, it's not, really, it's not really something that, that has any credibility. There's no evidence for its validity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I had no confidence in it, which I find it interesting because when you look at you know, books of evolution and so forth, you know, a person who reads a book on evolution is reading a book by an author that in most cases they've never met. And the person that wrote the book is writing about things that they've never actually personally witnessed happening. Mm -hmm. And they've never seen the process take place. Mm -hmm. And so a, a person who is believing these books is believing by faith a process that a person believes happened but hasn't really witnessed or evidenced it and a person that they never met, so they don't even know the credibility of this person. And so really, they're reading a book and believing a book by faith. Hmm. Same, same, I mean, if, if you want to look at it at a, just a fundamental level, it's the same thing as a Christian believing in the Bible. Actually, the Christian has a, a, as one step higher because the book that they're reading is written by people who were firsthand witnesses of what happened, not just... Something that I think might have happened, right? All right, so atheism, Mark mentioned this. I'm not going to go over it too much. Uh, the Greek words a and no, um, I'm sorry, a meaning not or no, and theos meaning God. Atheism claims that the natural matter in the universe is all that exists. The universe operates by natural laws only. Any event that seems to happen supernaturally is really some sort of natural occurrence. A reality of evil and so forth is the argument against God. If it seems like I'm rushing, it's because I am. Um, atheism believes that the book is a, Bible is a book of human invention, not the Word of God. If Jesus, if He existed, performed no miracles, did not rise from the dead, and was not God. Both atheism and agnosticism claim that human reason and scientific empiricism are the only sensible explanations for why things exist. 
And so because no element of existence can be measured or tested, God cannot viably exist. But if the origin of life and the universe can be explained scientifically, then God becomes unnecessary in the equation. But here's a problem with that. How many of you have heard of the scientific method? Right? There are seven steps of the scientific method. And I want you to think about this. Who came up with the scientific method? Humans, right? And is everything that humans touch flawed? And most, even most atheists would agree with that. Correct? And so, a couple of things. How do we know that that system isn't flawed? And B, how do we know that there's not some better system out there somewhere in the universe that we have not discovered yet? Does that make sense? So the scientific method is kind of like the, the, the all-star process that people use to come to certain conclusions, but even the most ardent scientists will have to agree that even though it's a good method, it still has problems. And every scientist I've ever talked to agrees with that statement. So here's another way of looking at it. The type of thinking, this type of thinking, uses very limited knowledge as the standard by which all things must be measured or tested. In other words, we simply don't know everything. Even the most scientific guesses about the origin of man are simply guesses. When they say 350 million years, they don't really know that. And when you challenge them on it in a way that is systematic, they ultimately confess, we don't really know. This is what we think. We don't have the evidence that it is this way. We just think it is based upon things we see and our theory of what happened. It's kind of like, you know, it's interesting when, I, when they, they'll find animals, fossils and so forth, that died and they'll say, oh, it, it died because of this reason. So something attacked it or a rock fell on it or whatever. And it's like, but that might be an idea of my, what might happen. And in fact, that might have been the way it happened, but you still do not know. That's the reality. And what, what blows my mind is that books will be written and they'll say, this is the history of life. And it's written in such a way that it's fact and they have the timelines of billions of years and millions of years and et cetera. But then something is discovered somewhere and they say, oh, this totally rewrites everything we once believed. And so they rewrite it the way they think it happened again. And they print all the textbooks and they say to the students in college and et cetera, this is the way it happened. But then a few years later, they discover something else and they rewrite the whole book again when the reality is that we need to just admit that we don't really know and, and not force it on people as if it's fact. So, think about this. Not everything can be measured empirically. Are you with me? So, in other words, I, I can take this pulpit and I can measure, make the dimensions and I can say it's this high and this wide and this deep and, and, and it's made from this kind of wood and I can do all these kind of facts and figures but not everything that exists in the universe is measured that way, okay? If you take a look at this picture, this was taken in Ukraine. And um, at that time, I had Bell's palsy. I've had all kinds of problems in my life. I've had cancer twice. I've had Bell's palsy three times. I've had all kinds of issues, but God still keeps my body together somehow. But um, this is my wife, and she's much more nice to look at than me. Um, but anyway, can you tell by that picture that we love each other? Yes. 
Can you measure that? No, I can't. Can you, can, can you put it in a bottle or, or put a ruler on it? You can't measure it, but you know it's there, right? Yes. So to say that God doesn't exist because He can't be measured is like saying that love for my wife doesn't exist because it can't be measured in a laboratory. That's a good point. The reality is that not everything that exists can be, you know, substantially or materially measured. Okay? What's that? Yeah, I mean, electricity can be measured, but, but there are certain things that cannot be. And the reality is, is that the Bible describes God as not being able to be measured by human, human systems. Okay? So what happens is you have people who take God in the Bible and they try to find the scientific evidence for Him and to measure Him and to put Him in our human scientific method when the Bible already says you can't do that. And then they get upset when they can't do that. When it, and then they say, well, he must not exist because we can't do this. When the book already said, you wouldn't be able to do it. Does that make sense? Now, what I'm not, what I'm not trying to say is that, well, God is just too big for us and, and we shouldn't, you know, the, the typical argument of the atheist against Christianity is anything you can't explain, you just say that God did it because you don't know how to explain it any other way. That is the biggest misconception of atheists about Christians. I have a whole book full of shelves, uh, book full of shelves, shelves full of books that are creation science and etc. that give great evidence. All you have to do is look around the entire world. The greatest evidence for God's existence is you, right? And science, when it was first initiated, was not intended to counter the concept of God, but to more deeply understand the concept of God. And as Christians, we are not anti-science. We are pro-true science, which more deeply reveals God's nature, His character, and His ways to us. Does that make sense? Okay. So, I already mentioned this. So, C.S. Lewis, which I don't promote everything he says, but he says a few good things. This is one. He says, Supposing science ever became so complete that it knew every single thing in the whole universe, could it also answer these questions? Number one, why is there a universe? Why does it go on as it does? And does it have any meaning? See, science can answer every question about technicalities, or it could. It doesn't, but it, if, it, if it could, it could never explain the purpose behind it all. You with me? Yeah. It couldn't. All right. Every nation and every culture that has rejected God you find it being its demise. You know, Napoleon, Hitler, communism, and many, the French Revolution is another. All of them uh, fall when they reject God. So what does the Bible claim about itself? It says that all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. So that means every word of Scripture is God-breathed, Yes. Not some or part or most, but all, correct? All the New Testaments. And what did Jesus claim about Himself? He said, I am the Son of God. So two things. If I came into this room and I said, look, God gave me a vision last night and He told me to write it down in a book and here it is for you and this is God's message to you. 
And by the way, in addition to that, I am God's son. Not a son of God, but the son of God. How many of you would, would be troubled by that, correct? Now, we're all Christians, of course, and we're religious people, but we would be troubled by that. How much more would a person who's not of the religious mindset to say, here's a book that God gave to, you know, He gave a message to people, they wrote it down, and they said, this is what truth is. And by the way, God sent His Son to this earth to do a thing for us who are in great need of it, right? Dying for our sins, etc. It makes about as much sense to them as what I just said makes to you if I told you that. Are you with me? And so there has to be some sort of reasoning that goes along with that. And so where is, in other words, the evidence for that? Um, I love this statement. It's very interesting by Josh McDowell. He said, why don't the names of Buddha, Muhammad, or Confucius offend people? And he says the reason is that these other, others did not claim to be God, but Jesus did. And when God comes into the picture, when a creator and or a savior come into the picture, there is a certain level of accountability that comes to my heart and my mind. There's a level of conviction that takes place that there is a power that is higher than me and I need to be in some type of standing with Him, right? And so Jesus claimed to be God. So how can I truly have confidence? Well, I'm going to just like go through these usually in an hour and I'm going to go through them in about 20 seconds, okay? But number one, prophecy. And we've, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, but prophecy does it. How can a mere man foretell 2,500 years of world history in advance with 100% accuracy? That's the question I had to answer as an atheist, and that's the question that I ask many other atheists after I share some prophecies with them, and they don't have an answer for that. I went to my college professors, and I broke it all down for them in about 10 minutes, wow. and I said, you tell me how this book has foretold world history from ancient times until the very present year we're living in and be totally accurate. And I give them the best 10-minute version I could. And they looked at me with a blank look, and it was a dismayed look. And they said, we don't have time to talk to you about this. It wasn't like, get out of my office, you're stupid, and we don't know what you're talking about. It was, there was a sense of conviction there. And I know the Lord was doing that. And so, prophecy. Archaeology is another evidence. I looked at a lot of archaeology, and I have several presentations on archaeology, biblical uh, discoveries, but every book in the Bible can be supported by archaeological evidence. Did you know that? There's never been an artifact recovered or archaeological finding discovered that disproves any biblical account. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like bones that people say are four billion years old or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical finds. Every biblical piece of archaeology has always confirmed what the Bible already said. And we don't have time to go through all those, although it's a fun, fun thing. But every biblical archaeological find has always supported the accurate account. Of course, science, there's many scientific statements in the Bible. Job 26.7, hangs the earth upon nothing. He sits on the circle of the earth. The Bible describes the, the earth as a circle long before Christopher Columbus came along uh, to make weights for the winds. I mean, there's many things, and we, I could, we could get into that. But one of the things that are the most fascinating to me are the health principles that are given. In the Old Testament, where the clean and unclean foods, the original diet in the Garden of Eden, 
All these things, you know, covering up the waste after you make waste, all these things societies and cultures struggled with for centuries of getting sick and having problems. And the Bible said what to do with all this stuff, and it told you how to eat. And science today has confirmed that all these things are true. How did those people have that knowledge then, except that God gave it to them? Make sense? And so it's very, the very diet that the Bible says is best, when, when modern secularism says that man was so primitive, and all, you know, eating like woolly mammals, raw flesh, and all this kind of stuff, they say that they, all they ate was meat. Yet the Bible says that man was vegetarian in the beginning, and science has now proven that vegetarianism is the best diet for you, right? And so it just it all lines up very beautifully. The Bible's unity, I'm not going to go into this, but how the Bible came together, very powerful. And of course, changed lives is one of the greatest evidences. I don't hear of people's lives just radically changing and being amazingly transformed through Islam or Buddhism. Or I mean, people claim it, but reality is it doesn't last long. Or Hinduism or any other thing. And then plain reason. I mean, people that deny Christianity believe, most of them, that a person named Jesus actually existed, but they say he was just a good man and a good teacher, nothing more. However, a good teacher will not deceive a person into believing something about him that isn't true. He won't lie and then teach others to lie. Jesus said, I'm the Son of God, and he taught others to believe that and to tell others to believe that. And so it can't be feasibly possible that he's a good moral man when he's telling a big fat lie, right? Or he's nuts. Um, so either that is true, either he is the Son of God, or he's the greatest deceiver and fraud that has ever existed. And then there is the evidence of thousands of eyewitnesses. And, you know, what's powerful to me is that most people throughout history don't write about their faults, right? But one of the greatest evidences of the Bible's validity is that it describes both the faults and the victories of men. Make sense? Yes. And all their victories came after all their faults had exhausted them of their own strength, and then they lifted their eyes to heaven, right? And so it's very powerful evidence, I think so, that you know, men did not die for something they don't believe in unless they think it can get them some kind of personal gain in most cases. But here you have the disciples being poor, persecuted, and martyred. They even wrote about their own mistakes. And why would they do that? What did they have to gain? They had nothing to gain except persecution. And men just don't do that. It's not in our natural nature to do that, right? All right. So let's go quickly. Can we do, um, it's 5.33. Can you go till 5.45? How many can do that? Brother, I know you're hungry, but I'll buy you a free ice cream. How about that? All right. So here's some... (laughs) Because I'm going after to get some myself, so we'll just go together. How about that? All right. So there's some arguments that many atheists make, and I just want to bring out some of those and some answers to those. One argument is that truth is relative. There are no absolutes. How many of you have heard that? I mean, it's it's a very common circular reasoning. Morality is relative to one's personal perspective or cultural background. Since morality doesn't originate with God, it did with human beings. And good or moral is defined by society 
as what is best for the largest number of people. In other words, the majority decides morality. If we don't have a concept of God, it's the majority that decides, right? And uh, Ernest Hemingway said, what is moral is what you feel good after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad after. In other words, experience is experience and experiential behavior is the definition of what truth is, is how we define truth, right? So in other words, I have to do it in order to determine it, right? But here's the reality. Saying that truth is relative is an absolute statement, which contradicts the whole idea. So when people say truth is relative, I say, say, um, and there are no absolutes, then I'll ask them, are you absolutely sure, right? I mean, it's very simple, because you can't, make, you can't believe that truth is relative if you think that it's absolute. I mean, you can't, if there are no absolutes, truth, you can't make the statement that truth is relative, because that's an absolute statement. So morality also goes against the very idea of evolution and survival of the fittest. Let me explain this to you. So when you think about survival of the fittest, what's the basic fundamental teaching of survival of the fittest? What's that? So strongest will survive. In fact, Adolf Hitler read, was reading um, Nietzsche and Charles Darwin, and he believed in the element of survival of the fittest. And he thought to himself, well, the Jews are a very weak race of people, Eventually, they're going to die off anyway, so why not just speed up the process? And that's what he did. So he just said, I'm just kind of helping speed up the thing of evolution so that as the weak die off, the strong who are us can become more supreme quicker. And I don't want to die waiting for that, so why not help the process, right? So the idea of survival of the fittest is if there's one piece of bread and there's both of us, let's say Diane and I, Diane and I are good friends. You think I'd win? All right, maybe I'd win, I don't know. But if there's one piece of bread, and it takes that one piece of bread to keep us alive, we can't break it in half and share it or we'd both die. So one of us has to have the whole piece of bread to live, right? So one of us has to eliminate the other or at least push her down and out of the way to get the bread, right? So according to survival of the fittest, if I do that, if I, if I eliminate Diane so that I can get the bread and live, how should I feel about that? Huh? I should feel good because now I'm going to live, right? But she's gone, but I feel good about it because survival of the fittest says I do whatever is necessary for me to survive, right? But morality says, and Christianity says, that I need to do what? Self-sacrifice. And in our hearts, when we act on survival of the fittest, we do that which will benefit myself at the expense of others, how does that make us feel? Now listen, somebody might say, well, that depends on how you view your life. But the reality is that our culture and our society is the most miserable it's ever been because we've been living that way for the last 25 to 50 years. Are you with me? We've progressed in that. And so morality says, 
that if I self-sacrifice for the sake of others, I'll have peace. And that's the reality, that when I give up something of my own good for someone else, how do I usually feel? I feel good about that. So this issue that is the reality of the human life goes against the concept of that, philosophically. Okay? Um, a society also we, we said in the previous slide that society as a whole decides what is good and what is not good, morality. But the truth is, the society decides what is moral. Who decides which society is moral? Right? If truth is relative and everyone can do whatever they want, then who's to say that cannibalism is wrong? Who's to say that Nazi, the concepts of Nazi Germany are wrong? And who, what society and what people group is qualified to be the describers and the establishers of morality in the world? That makes sense? Like there is no people group who could rise one. I mean, many could claim that they are, but the reality is every society and every individual has their own lack and shortage of morality. And I mean, we could go so far as to say, you know, child molesters. Who would say that that, that is wrong if truth is relative, right? All right, the concept of God is not supported by science. Number two, uh, there is no the argument is there is no scientific evidence for the viable existence of God. Scientific evidence goes against the existence of God. And macroevolution is evidence that the creation story is not viable, and thus God doesn't exist. Richard Dawkins made the statement, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. That's what he said. That's what he said. And so... Here's, here's, the, here's the reality. The concept of God is supported by science. To say that there is no scientific evidence for God is unfairly closing the door to the idea. So in other words, to be truly scientific, you must consider every option until it's proven false. And to not do so is unscientific. That's right. Are you with me? And... So, the truth is that there is no evidence that suggests that God doesn't exist. Especially in the evolution world. Now, the reality is there's no evidence to support evolution. There's one question I've never gotten an answer to, and I've always asked people that believe in evolution. It's very simple. I say, can you name for me one species of animal either in the fossil record or living today, that has successfully transitioned from one species to another through macroevolution? And the answer is no. In the fossil record, there's, no, there's all kinds of animals, but there's no evidence that they have transitioned. Now, every animal has the ability to microevolve, which means to adapt to their surroundings. In other words, if you have deer in Alaska that have thick fur, you bring them to Florida, they're going to lose that hair, and over generations, they're going to generate, regenerate and reproduce deer with thinner hair, correct? But there is no evidence of one species translating to another. And they, they will give out these evidence. There's these fish that exist in caves and different things, and, and there's different evidences of these things of changing and adapting to the surroundings. But the reality is that whatever it was, if it was a fish and it micro-adapts, at the end of that adapting, it's still a fish. 
It does not change species. There's not one single evidence of that, and that's why evolution is still a theory. Now, people talk about also things like uh, um, carbon dating. How many of you have heard of carbon dating? And carbon dating is basically taking a sample of, of something that's found and measuring the rate at which the carbon has broken down and they believe the carbon breaks down at a certain rate. So if you see how much carbon is there and how much has already broken down, you can measure the amount of time. But it's a relatively short measuring time. When I say short, I mean like up to like 500,000 years. But here's the reality, that they don't know that carbon has always broken down at the same rate then as it does today. And in fact, they've actually taken samples of live animals like dogs and cats, and they've sampled those and run the test and it showed that the, the, the animal that was alive in front of them, wagging its tail, was 250,000 years old. Wow. And so the evidence is, is very nebulous. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, really, these things are there. Now, again, friends, I don't want you to, to have the concept in your mind that because of these things, we should go out and, and just, like, harass people, yeah. okay? We're not using them to antagonize people, but I'm just sharing this with you. Now, I want to skip past this because we've already kind of covered this. Um, but I do find this interesting that he, an answer that I give to people when they say, well, I can't believe in a God that would allow starving children to exist in Africa. You ever heard people say that? Yeah. You, know, you look on TV and there's these bag of bones people. But look at this. Here's a young man. It's, a, it's like a little meme. Here's a young man sitting on a park bench with Jesus. And the young man says, So why do you allow things like famine, war, suffering, disease, crime, homelessness, despair to exist in our world? And Jesus responds by saying, It's interesting that you should bring up that up as I was about to ask you the very same question. The reality is, there, while there are famines in the world, there is actually enough food to feed every mouth. Yes. It's not that there's a shortage, it's that there is a distribution problem. That God has made us stewards of this world, and we have greatly and viciously abused that stewardship. Does that make sense? So I'll run across an atheist, and you know, I've visited with him. I have friends that are atheists, and, I've, and I've, we've, we've laughed at this. Because they know that I'm right, and they say, well, I can't believe in God because of those things. And I'll say, look, I'll be in their house. I've been in their house. I said, right over there in the corner of your living room, you have three video game systems that if we sold those, we could probably get $1,000 for all three of them in all your games. We could get a couple hundred dollars from your big screen TV right there. We could have you not drink beer for a month and get another couple hundred dollars. So we could get $1,500 right now. I'll tell you what, if you'll sell all those things and you'll not drink for a month and get that $1,500, I'll take $1,500 of my money, I'll sell something or do something, and we'll take $3,000 down to the local humanitarian uh, ministry and we'll buy food for an entire village for a year. 
and we'll solve the problem of hunger together for that village. And you know what they say? Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I say, wait a minute, like you can't believe in God because he won't do something, but you have it in the power of your own hand to do something and you won't. What if it is that God, whom you think isn't doing anything, is actually wanting to do something through you so that those people will be blessed and you will have a joy in your heart that you can't even explain? You know what I hear every single time? Same thing as when Lazarus rose from the dead in John chapter 11. Silence. And so friends, I don't go for this foolishness that God doesn't exist because He allows evil. Much of the suffering in this world can be alleviated by humanity, but we refuse to do it. We refuse to do it. Now, quickly, and this is, we'll just wrap up here. Just a few statements I want to share with you. Charles Darwin made this statement. He said, I am quite conscious that my speculations, his theories, run beyond the bounds of true science. It is a mere rag of hypothesis with as many flaws and holes as sound parts. That's what he actually came to the conclusion of. When he was a boy... He was well known for being able to tell really great, wildly imaginative stories. And when he got big, his stories got, as he got bigger, his stories got bigger. Right? Now, again, he was trying to figure out an answer to the pain in his own heart. And that's what I find almost every case is with every evolutionist. To improve a living organism by random mutation is like saying you could improve a Swiss watch by dropping it and bending one of its wheels or axis. Improving like by random, I'm sorry, improving life by random mutations has the probability of zero. That's by Albert Georgi. Georgi, yes. Richard Leakey, world-famous paleoanthropologist, said this: If pressed about man's ancestry, I would have to say that we all we have to all we have is a huge question mark. To date, there has been nothing found to truthfully support a transitional species to man. This is what I just told you. If further pressed, I would have to state that there is, a more, there is more evidence to suggest an abrupt arrival of man rather than a gradual process of evolving. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And then one more, Dr. Harold Urey, who's a chemist. He says, all of us who study the origin of life and find that the find that the more we look into it, the more we feel that it is too complex to have evolved anywhere. We believe as an article of faith that life evolved from dead matter on this planet. It is just that its complexity is so great, it is hard for us to imagine that it did. Isn't that amazing? Now bear with me, I just want to wrap up with this, okay? Here's what I ask people when they say, I'm an atheist. I'll ask them this question. How do you know for sure that there is no God? And they'll say, well, it's just what I believe. And I say, look, if, if of all that there is to know, how much do you think you know? Like, give me a percentage. So, uh, if all there is to know in the universe, do you think you know 50%? And they'll say, probably not. So then I usually go up. I'll say, well, what about 90%? They'll say, no, 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 much less. I say 1% of all there is to know. 
And they say, yeah, we could say 1%, which is really greatly over-exaggerated, right? But let's suppose it's 1%. Of all there is to know, we know 1%. That means how much there is that we don't know, 99%. So let's suppose that in the 99% of all that you don't know, is it possible that God could exist there? That God is existing in the 99% that you don't know? I'm not asking you to say He is. I'm just asking you to say, is it possible? And they cannot say what? No. No, right? Cannot say no. And so, but if I know 1% of all there is to know, could God reveal Himself to me in the 1%? Is that possible? Yeah, so I could know even less than 1% and still know that God exists, right? The blue jay just hit the wall. That's our alarm clock. So then I'll say, look, how... Why is it that you don't believe in God? And they'll usually tell me, well, because, you know, of the pain in their life or because of I don't believe in eternally burning hell or whatever. And usually all the answers they give me are misconceptions about God's character. So I say, look, this is actually the, the character of the, of the God that the Bible reveals. And then I'll share with them some, some things. And I'll say, if that's the kind of God you believe in, then I'm an atheist too, huh. right? Okay, so I don't believe in that kind of God either. And then I'll say, so suppose that there there was a God who wasn't like the God you don't believe in, but he was a personal loving God. He cared about you individually. He wanted to he wanted to help you. He wanted to be your friend and he had the ability to help you and the ability to guide your life and, and keep you on a path that's good and true. If that was true, and you could spend, literally, eternity with that God, would you want to do that? And most people I ask that question to, they say, I'd be a fool not to, but I don't believe it's true, right? So here's what happens. In the course of five minutes, I say, look, you can't really claim to be an atheist because you can't really know for sure. So that moves you to agnostic, which means God may or may not exist. But then the fact that you'd be willing to believe in a God like that, if you thought He existed, means you're not even an agnostic, but you're actually a seeker. Because if He was there, you'd want to know Him. So in five minutes, you go from atheistic to seeker. Make sense? Okay. Now, here's something that, and then I'll end with this. The reality is that you have to have more faith to be an atheist than you do to believe in God. Okay? And here's why. Let me just give you one illustration of this. When you're a freshman in a secular university, you typically take in your freshman year Biology 101 and Biology 102. Correct? You come in Biology 101, and they will say, One of the basic laws of thermodynamics is that anything living can never come from anything what? Non-living. In other words, you have a rock, and you can melt that rock, you can blow it up, you can glue it back together, you you can crush it, you can do whatever you want to that rock, you can microwave it, you can shoot electricity into it, and no matter what you do to that rock, for how long you do it, it's always going to be a what? Rocket's never going to come alive. It's never going to produce anything. It's never going to sprout shoots. It's always going to be a rock because nothing living could come from anything 
non-living, correct? That's what you learn in Biology 101. You go home for Christmas break, you eat lots of whatever, and you come back in the spring semester, you have Biology 102, and then they say, I mean, I had this, this literally happened to me, and that's one of the things that made me start thinking that, hey, this doesn't really make much sense. You come back and they say, everything living came from non-living. You had a lot of stardust, you had a lot of, a lot of chemicals and different things floating around. They compressed together over time. And basically, the reality is that the Big Bang Theory goes something like this. It's virtually impossible that the explosion could take place. It's like one in almost impossible chances, but enough time passed and the, and the universe sat still long enough that over the course of a long enough period of time, that chance that is virtually impossible eventually came along, right? And everything compressed together and then it exploded and everything spun and things took their course and stars and planets began to form. And then somehow, electricity, something happened, and it struck something, and the first cell was formed. But it was formed from everything what? Non-living. And so that's, that's one of the most blatant contradictions that there are in that theory today. And uh, if you've ever seen the video, Expelled, how many of you ever seen that video? Um, at the very end, Ben Stein interviews Richard Dawkins, and uh, he asked him, how is it that that first cell came to be on planet Earth that began to reproduce and split and osmosis and et cetera, and eventually became what we are today? And, and the ultimate conclusion is, I don't know. But one of the theories he gave was that another advanced civilization that had evolved came to this planet and deposited a single cell and then left. Aliens. And eventually that cell became everything we have today. But then naturally, how did that take place, right? So the reason I tell you this stuff is not so that you can leave here and go out and bash people with this information, okay? It's, it's just common sense, but it's not that you can bash them and argue with them because Ellen White says you'll never win a single argument. But what I want you to know is that, the reason I want you to know this is that you're not intimidated by people who make these arguments. And that the answer to their argument is a Christ-like life. And using Christ's method to draw close to them, and I have a whole section on that, but we don't have time, to draw close to them and be there for them like no one else is. And when they have a crisis in their life, that is your opportunity to move in and minister to them, and they see Christ living in you. Then as they begin to soften and open up, you have the opportunity to give them answers about our faith, amen? And help them understand the themes that we understand and give them intelligent, reasonable answers for the faith. I'm not saying you can't share this information, but do it in a winsome, loving way. I presented it to you a little bit antagonistic because I want you to see the significance of it. But when you present it to them, you're not doing it the same way, you understand, in a very winsome way. And the Lord will begin to, begin to uh, 
work upon their hearts. Amen? Amen? And so, friends, don't be intimidated by these things, but also don't be combative and foolish either. Use Christ's method because Christ's method works on the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Methodist, the Baptist, and the atheist, and the agnostic. Amen? It reaches every heart because every human heart, no matter what the belief system, wants to be loved, wants to be known by others, and they want to have that affection. And truly, there's only one love that can fill the hole in their hearts, and that's Christ's love. And as they see that love in you, their hearts will begin to open up. Amen? I'll have to tell you another time. <laughs> but anyway, well, let's, uh, let's stand for prayer. And if you have any questions, I'll be glad to stay by. But um, thank you for your patience. And, uh, but I hope you gain something from it. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of understanding that it is our prophetic message that is the answer to this world's cry from the results, the devastating results of sin upon both individual lives and nations and the people of the earth. And I pray today that Christ would be living in us, the hope of glory, and that our faith would be in Him and Him alone. And Lord, that as that faith lives within us, as we live and walk day by day in the resurrection power of Christ, that Your light would shine through us to this lost world. And it would be a light that points to the greatest light, which is Jesus. And Lord, that we would use reason and logic, but only to get our foot in the door, Lord, but ultimately it's the Word of God that brings true conviction and change to the life. And so, Lord, help us not to argue, but to just uh, live such a life that no one can argue against it. And that can only happen, Lord, as you're living within us. So, Lord, as we go forth, may we be equipped and may we understand and have wisdom from heaven as we speak to the lost souls of this earth. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' sweet name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.